Holtec, the company that makes storage containers for high-level nuclear waste, meaning radioactively hot fuel rods from nuclear reactors, is trying to convince everyone that they've got the problem of radioactive waste storage under control and that New Mexico would be the perfect place to stash all those nasty plutonium-laden fuel rods that will be deadly for close to half a million years. But then, when you hear a real expert on these issues crunch the numbers, and he says... The current designs have shown there's probably a good chance of those containers being good for about 20 years, but it's unknown what happens after 20 years, and they're proposing to store these in southeast New Mexico from 60 to 120 years before a long-term storage is needed. Well, when you run the math and realize the pro-nuclear numbers just don't add up to anything close to long-term storage safety from high-level radioactive nuclear waste, you just might start to realize that you two are in the seat we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with John Bookser. He is chair of the Sierra Club Rio Grande chapter, and he gives us the lowdown on plans being pushed forward to make New Mexico the designated nuclear waste dump for the country for decades, if not for more than a century, if not forever, depending on whether the waste ever gets removed from New Mexico at all. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shout-outs, and more honest nuclear information than Americans are likely to hear this 4th of July holiday. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 3rd, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Since the U.S. is focused so much right now on fireworks, barbecues, and beer, Let's start with the international news and a great story out of France. The French chapter of Greenpeace, the equivalent of the Marine Corps for the anti-nuclear movement, designed a drone to look like Superman and then flew it over the Bouget nuclear plant, about 44 kilometers from Lyon, that's 27 miles, and smashed it into the side of a spent fuel pool. As if that wasn't enough, they took a second drone that was not designed to look like Superman and did the exact same thing. 
flew it through a no-flight zone, and made it crash against the wall of the exact same spent fuel storage pool, which was attached to Reactor 2. There was absolutely no security response at the time. And Greenpeace says this action demonstrates once again the extreme vulnerability to terrorists of this type of building, which is the most radioactive in a nuclear power plant. Would that Greenpeace USA would get busy and do some of the same actions? In Norway, a major victory for the environment as the country announces that it will shut down the Halden nuclear reactor. The financially and technically troubled reactor experienced a leak in 2016 and has been under a closure since March of this year due to a valve failure. Another one bites the dust. Thank you, Norway. A trio of stories out of Chernobyl in Ukraine. More than 30 years after its catastrophic meltdown, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant is being blamed for high radiation levels discovered in local cow's milk. Sampling milk from private farms in Ukraine's Rivne area, scientists from Exeter University and the National University of Life and Environmental Sciences discovered radioactive material from more than three decades ago had leached into the livestock. This means farmers are unwittingly producing milk with radioactive cesium levels above the Ukraine safety standard of 100 becquerels per liter, which is already way too high. And some farms had milk with a radioactivity concentration of about 500 becquerels per liter. According to one of the researchers, Dr. Irina Labuska, the milk study shows how nuclear accidents have a long-lasting legacy. Nuclear. The gift that keeps on giving whether you want it or not. For the first time, researchers have tracked a wolf traveling far beyond Chernobyl's radioactive exclusion zone, raising questions about the potential spread of radiation-induced genetic mutations. There are thought to be up to seven times the number of wolves inside the exclusion zone as there are in surrounding areas, which suggests a likelihood that a proportion of the population will spread further afield to hunt. And a group of 145 special needs children from orphanages and homes in the Chernobyl-affected regions of Belarus flew into Shannon Airport in Ireland on Wednesday, June 27, as part of a long-standing Irish-funded program to help combat the long-term effects of nuclear radiation on their lives. The children, who form part of the third generation of Chernobyl victims were met by host families from 10 countries with whom they will spend rest and recreation breaks for the next four weeks. The airlift was organized by A.D. Roche's Chernobyl Children's International, which has brought more than 25,500 children and young adults to Ireland since 1991. In Australia, fear tactics and headlines saying, Breakdown at Lucas Heights nuclear reactor in Sydney sparks fears of medical supplies shortage and goes on to say thousands of patients could face delays in getting diagnostic scans after a breakdown in the nuclear reactor. It produces Australia's only source of nuclear medical supplies and broke down on Friday, June 22nd. However, in a very informative footnote by Australian listener Brett Bernard Stokes, the reactor is not needed at all for medicine. As in Canada, cyclotrons can be used to produce the required isotopes safely and reliably and without creating a problematic radioactive waste stream. So perhaps this is the time for Australia to look about switching over its technologies.
from our good friend Dr. Gordon Edwards at the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility comes this alert that Canada is threatened with the in situ decommissioning or entombment of two old nuclear reactors that have both been shut down for several decades. They are the WR-1 reactor on the Winnipeg River in Manitoba and the NPD reactor on the Ottawa River about 250 kilometers or 155 miles upstream from the nation's capital, Ottawa. The decommissioning enterprise has been placed in the hands of a consortium of multinational corporations and they, using public money, have radically altered earlier plans and just want to drop all the radioactive debris into the sub-basements of the reactor buildings and then flood those underground structures with Portland cement, creating a subterranean cement mausoleum, which Dr. Edwards calls a radioactive outhouse for eternity. Much more information, I will link to that one. Across the pond to the U.K., As global warming raises sea levels and intensifies coastal storms, 12 of Britain's 19 civil nuclear sites are at risk of flooding and coastal erosion as the UK warms, this according to a government analysis. The at-risk nuclear sites are Hunterston, Sellafield, Wyfla, Hinkley Point, Dunray, Haysham, Berkeley, Oldbury, Hartlespool, Sizewell, Bradwell, and Dungeness. In Japan, at a meeting to discuss completion of restoration work at the J-Village National Soccer Training Center in time for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, TEPCO's president revealed that it is likely that they will decommission the four units at Fukushima Daini, close by Fukushima Daiichi. In the U.S., the Albuquerque Journal weighed in with he said, he said, opposing perspectives on the planned nuclear storage site, The anti-article was written by our guest today, and you'll hear more about that in just a few moments. And now... Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None That's Out of Week! Ah, NPR, we hardly know ye. In a June 12 broadcast of Morning Edition, the News-ish Network Magazine program, A report ran under the title, More Than Half of the Nation's Nuclear Power Plants Are At Risk of Closing. Just by using that terminology there, there is a bias. This is not a neutral story. This is a pro-nuclear story. And it goes on to prove it repeatedly. The first two-thirds quotes industry wonks and makes an unobjected case for the industry being able to take in state funds intended for renewable energy to keep nukes alive. And specifically in this report, Three Mile Island. Only in the last third do they even bring in any alternative perspective, and that is given no context, just a few little sound bites. And near the close, it actually includes the statement from someone who does opinion research for the nuclear industry, who says, a lot fewer people oppose nuclear energy now than just after the Three Mile Island disaster. Ya think? Back then, we knew that our fears of the nuclear industry were justified because that thing melted down. And you've spent the years since then covering it up and trying to make it look normal. And shame on you, NPR, for playing along with this. And that's why National Public Radio and reporter, quote-unquote, 
Jeff Brady. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, when it comes to nuclear, unless you know where to look, it's hard to get information that clues you in to the manipulations of the industry and the moneyed PR juggernaut behind it. The industry just keeps pushing its expansive, expensive agenda with very little pushback from an uncritical mainstream media that blithely delivers their well-manicured talking points. That's why you've learned to count on Nuclear Hot Seat, to get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism as to the official line that's being blurted out over all of us. We, Nuclear Hot Seat, gets behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week with fresh information, an unrelenting perspective, and even, whenever possible, humor. And this is what we have been doing for more than seven years. Does having this kind of information each week help you understand what's going on nuclear-wise? That's what we're here for. But in order to keep being here and keep doing it, we need your help to meet our expenses. If you value the kind of information Nuclear Hot Seat provides, please give us a boost by sending a donation of any size. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. You can send a one-time donation or set up a monthly recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who want to make a big difference, but like so many people these days lack the budget, you can help us out a little at a time. On the website, there is also a big green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month, about the same as what you would spend on a cup of coffee with a nice tip here in the U.S. It really does make a big difference in helping us meet our monthly expenses. So please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running as we search out and share information that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, you certainly have my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. In the never-ending struggle to figure out what to do with nuclear waste, besides dump it forever in areas populated almost exclusively by the poor and the ethnically non-white, one of the hottest battlegrounds is in New Mexico. That's where Holtec, makers of the notorious thin canisters, or tin cans as I like to call them, that are used to store nuclear waste and that have already developed unfixable problems at California's San Onofre reactor, are trying to foist a so-called interim, they want to make us believe it's only temporary, interim storage site in just that kind of an area. As Betty Davis might say, what a dump. Yeah, you got that right, Betty. Well, today's guest is part of a coalition of activist groups fighting against this nuclear waste dump. John Bookser is a two-term chair of the Sierra Club Rio Grande chapter. We spoke last Friday, June 29, 2018. John Bookser, thank you so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks, Libby. Let's start out with a little bit about you. What is your background and how did you get involved with the Sierra Club? I'm a computer scientist. 
I went into that field because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I'm still in that mode. I retired about two years ago from working for the New Mexico Office of the State Engineer. About over 20 years ago, I got involved with the Sierra Club because of my interest in public lands issues within New Mexico and the Southwest. I've been chapter chair in the Rio Grande chapter for about eight years, and I passed the hat on to former mayor of Santa Fe, David Cross, about two years ago. What nuclear issues has Sierra Club in New Mexico been involved with in the past? We haven't been involved in any nuclear issues in the past. As of 10 years ago, the club was completely volunteer-driven, and we actually, 10 years ago, hired a lobbyist, and then a couple years ago, we hired a chapter director. And the issues have been focused on things other than nuclear issues, so the capacity has just been less working primarily with volunteers. Two years ago, when I retired, I was looking for how do I focus more on issues when I have more time? And I've always been interested in water issues. And it seemed like nuclear waste dumps at near ground level were particularly bad plans. So I became involved on some of the groundwater permits, in particular on the waste control systems groundwater permit got sort of was the first to hit my attention. And at that point, I became aware of the Holtec high-level nuclear waste storage facility. Lay out the problem that we face now with Holtec and the proposed storage facility, as well as some of our primary concerns. What Holtec is proposing is a very shallow burial, high-level nuclear waste dump. The source of this waste is nuclear fuel rods from reactors all around the country. The process that happens after the um, rods are no longer used in the reactors, they're placed into a pool of water to help protect workers, and they're still quite thermally hot and radioactive hot. Ultimately, those fuel rods get put into canisters, which are either for temporary storage or for long-term storage. And then in a site like San Onofre, where the reactor has been shut down, and there's very high population in that area, citizens are concerned about storing those canisters for gosh knows how long, quite close to the ocean, and what might happen to those canisters if they failed. So what Holtec has proposed, they specialize in making these canisters and transporting them. That's like 80% of their business. They don't have anywhere to send those canisters and so as a business proposition, it looks like a great idea to them to send them near an existing uh, nuclear waste facility for low-level nuclear waste, which is the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, also called WIP. So they think, well, we'll just put it near there. We've got support from local politicians, but they don't have support from the people. Where's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in all of this? We know it's a captured agency, but what are the issues that the NRC will consider on Holtec's application? The things that they'll consider is things that directly relate to the repository itself. What they are not allowed to consider is 
the transportation challenges, which are substantial. Basically, they have to look at the site and decide if it, that's a suitable place to put the stuff, if the safety of the public and of the workers is assured, and if there's any environmental considerations that come into play, they need to consider that as well. So their focus is much narrower than the public's focus overall. The public is looking at what are the risks overall. So there's actually experts within the industry who think that one of the failures of our system is that we're not thinking about this in an integrated way. The NRC charter is to look at just this facility, not look at the other issues surrounding it. What other groups has the Sierra Club been working with on this? I know that on Nuclear Hot Seat, we've talked with Karen Haddon of the Seed Coalition in, in West Texas, Leona Morgan of Whole No, and so many other groups. And there are several anti-nuclear groups that are concerned about this and have done actions. Is this being worked on individually by the groups or is there any kind of coalition coming together? There's been very much a coalition and I have the members of that coalition to thank for getting me up to speed on what the issues are and what the concerns are. And they've also been highly effective. There's only two of us in the Sierra Club that are actively working on this issue. Patricia Cardona spent several weeks down in the Southeast New Mexico looking for citizens who had concerns and wanted to learn more about the issue. There's a wide diversity of other groups that have been instrumental in consolidating public input from a wide diversity of folks and a lot of different kinds of concerns. How adequate is the information that's available to the public to evaluate the technical feasibility of this dump? And where are they talking about putting it? There's probably about 60 documents on NRC's website relating to this facility. There's a handful that are available. The longest one is 600 plus pages. There's a lot of holes in what information is publicly available. A lot of the details of technical design are not available. There are, for example, cast design details are available on, in other places on the NRC's website, but they're not cross-referenced. What I see as some of the biggest missing elements are things that relate to worker and public safety. That's probably the biggie. And then in terms of what information's actually out there, there's statements in the environmental assessment that Holtec has provided that state well, if there's any accidents, we'll figure out how to deal with addressing those accidents because they're highly unlikely, so it's not worth the time to address these at this point. So you know, me, me with a technical background, I think that that should be included. You know, there's basically two ways to go. If there's failures, you place um, one of these casks, which is a dual-purpose cask. It's both for storage and transport and it's already extremely heavy, if you put that cask into another cask, which is the easiest solution in my view, it becomes so heavy that the transport becomes even more difficult. And then the other alternative is what's called a hot box, basically a $30 million or more facility to be able to unpackage the waste and put it into a different container. 
one of the challenges of running that kind of a facility is that hotbox becomes contaminated fairly quickly, has to be decontaminated, creating even more waste in the process of decontaminating it and making it safe enough for workers to use. So those are two of the biggest technical challenges faced by the industry and us as citizens. And those are the two areas where whole techs just sort of waved their hands and said, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out later. There, there, Missy, don't worry your pretty little head about it. <laughs> yeah. The lack of foresight and the assumptions of the industry on a weekly basis blow me away because they're not concerned with safety. It seems like they're only concerned with the bottom line and creating the illusion that they are appropriately taking care of the waste when all they're doing is warehousing it somewhere that they don't live so that they can step away from it. Yeah, you know, it, to me, I try to put myself in Holtec's shoes. Their business is primarily to manage waste and for them to be able to minimize costs and be able to succeed in that goal for profit is primary. And part of what they say is, is almost true, that the likelihood of an accident is extremely low. The way they put it is it's next to impossible. I don't think it's next to impossible. I do concur that it's very low probability of an accident. However, if you do have an accident or leakage, it's extremely high risk it's certainly within the realm of possibility. They get a serious leak that they can't handle before it becomes too hot to deal with, and you basically evacuate southeast New Mexico. Chernobyl provides a great example of how long it takes to deal with. I, I was working at Los Alamos National Laboratory many years ago when this, and it actually was when it happened. I got to watch some real time satellite surveillance of the site. And you could see how the top of the reactor had been blown off and has, you know, it's still closed. They're just now putting a cover over the facility so they can dismantle that. And, you know, like how many, what was that, like four decades ago? It was actually 32 years ago that it happened. And the new safe containment, which is what they're calling it, the dome over it has been completed and is in place, but it's only going to be good for a hundred years before it becomes contaminated. And yet another shell is going to be called for above that. So to me, that's a great example of what happens if something goes wrong. Now, I think the risk of a container breaking is less than the risk of some other nuclear accident. Well, but it doesn't mean we deal with this in sort of a casual way. And it doesn't mean we put the citizens and the industries, we put the oil and gas industry at risk, we put the dairy industry at risk, and we put the tourism industry at risk in that entire area. And the health effects of the various industries that are creating um, radioactive contamination in that area are already beginning to show up in folks' health It's only an acceptable risk if you consider everything and you minimize risk. And this isn't minimizing risk. This is maximizing opportunity for profit. I just have to ask, the casks that Holtec is using or proposing to use, are those the same five-eighths inch thick stainless steel cans, tin cans, thin canisters that are being used at San Onofre? 
it's the whole text. I believe it's their High Star 190 design. So that that is, I believe, the only Holtec approved canister for both storing and shipment. The, there's a trade-off in their design, which is that they need to make it light enough to ship, or they need to make it heavy enough to protect for a long term. Uh, many of the European countries have chosen the thicker container, which makes it more difficult to ship. So they're loading, you know, maybe four fuel rods in each of these heavier canisters. Whereas Holtec's looking at a design trade-off between the thinner canisters and the weight for the purpose of shipment. So I think the current designs have shown there's probably a good chance of those containers being good for about 20 years, but it's unknown what happens after 20 years. And they're proposing to store these in Southeast New Mexico from 60 to 120 years before a long-term storage is needed. And I think that, as has been stated by a number of folks, we need to keep the issue in the public's eye to look for a long-term solution to the problem. If all goes as planned, what are the possible health risks to the people in the area? Well, if all goes as planned and nothing fails, the health risks are relatively low. But there's a big but in the middle of that sentence. Yeah, if anything fails, if one cask fails and it le it's leaking slowly, it's detected quickly, and there's no uh, technology stated in the environmental assessment for continuous monitoring, that's a problem. So you're not going to know quickly if it started leaking, if any of these have started leaking. That's a pretty significant problem. If you were to detect it at an early stage and remediate it, and they don't have a way to remediate it yet, if you quickly sense it and you quickly address it, the risk probably goes up to the moderate level. As long as you can still get people into the facility to do that transition in an accelerated way, you're sort of still in a moderate level. Now, if you let that go longer, or if somebody comes in there with an artillery piercing shell, launches it at the facility from, say, half a mile away, so you just drive up your van, pull out your Stinger missile, launch it at the site, pierce one of those containers, uh, I don't think that there's going to be a means of dealing with that amount of radiation. So basically, you evacuate many miles around the site, and it becomes a permanent problem like Chernobyl. Give us a visual. Are we talking about storage above ground, or are they talking about going underground to store, such as WIP uses? Basically, what they do is they dig about 25-foot hole in the ground. That's nothing. So it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty shallow. They line the bottom of that with concrete, and they make a square hole and line that with concrete. And then the cask is lowered into that in a vertical position, and then they put a concrete cap on top of that. Then they have to have ventilation because they're still thermally running a couple hundred degrees centigrade. So the inner cask is what's, where the rods are stored. The outer cask has a hole in the bottom and a hole in the top. And all that heat basically circulates along the interior cask and, and goes out through the top hole. 
that's basically your your design. So if you look at a terrorism scenario, you would have to go through some significant amount of concrete, and you would also have to go through two layers of stainless steel. So it it does require a fairly good-sized piece of artillery, but... Not an impossible one. Not an... No, we've certainly seen cases where uh, our country is one of the big uh, manufacturers of such things. So it, those things are around. And if you can't find one from the U.S., there's other countries that make such things. Who's behind this turning New Mexico into a nuclear waste dump? And what or who is supporting it? Our desire to use the nuclear opportunity is what's created the problem. And it's presumed to be this carbon neutral solution to the problem of energy generation. We, the public, have created the problem by once we unleashed the power of the atom, we thought, well, gosh, this can be used for good things. But now we're sitting on the challenge, mostly in the East Coast, of these fuel rods sitting out there, and what do we do with them? Basically, we have a problem and we need to find a solution. The long-term solution is highly likely underground storage because these things stay radioactive for so long. A reasonable time frame to aim for is at least 10,000 years, but some of the stuff's radioactive for millions of years. And if, even if you look at the amount of time that the U.S. government has existed, a little over 200 years, I find it difficult to think just seven generations ahead, much less 10,000 years. You know, there's cultures around the world that consider seven generations to be the level of thinking you need to take into account when you're making decisions. I don't think we are prepared as a society to deal with thinking in those terms. You know, we think businesses think six months to two years out in terms of what they want to do. They don't think seven generations. So it becomes then a political challenge rather than a business challenge because businesses just don't exist that long we can be maybe hopeful that our government exists long enough to come to a decision, but it's a problem because nobody wants it. You know, we don't want it here in New Mexico. I know California doesn't want it. Basically, nobody wants this sitting in their backyards. We know that it's pretty dangerous for a long time. So it becomes a very difficult solution to attain political will to take it, take this waste. Who is involved in objecting to this? Is it generally known? Is the public involved? Or is it just a small group of already dedicated anti-nuclear activists who are doing it? I think the problem is becoming better known as reactors are being retired and folks within those communities feel they're in a position to make the problem go away. So I'd say that the retired reactors and people within those communities are creating a much greater public awareness of the problem. I'd say it's transitioning from a be against nuclear group to being much a broader interest. Now, one of the concerns is that with the Republican administration, it's being moved faster the Shemkis bill is kind of an example of that, where Nevada has said, no, we don't want this waste. And the Shemkis bill says, oh, well, let's proceed anyhow. 
the government hasn't been involved in research. When Yucca was shut down, there was a group of very smart people who assessed what needs to happen afterwards. I believe that was called the Blue Ribbon Commission. And they had basically not put the resources, not put the money into thinking about what do we need to do. So there needs to be the political will to really think about the problem in an integrated way. I like to think of systems as little pieces, but you have to think about how all the pieces fit together. In the case of Holtec and their consolidated storage site, they're just thinking about it as that little piece. And so it's up to us members of the public to push on the political machine to make it more thoughtful and complete solution. And think about the impacts on others, like the native communities are saying, no, we don't want this way shipped through our communities. The folks in New Mexico are saying, no, we don't want to be further promoting the whole nuclear industry. We've already been a part of the creation of you know, the mining. Um, we've been part of the research. We've been part of the deployment of nuclear weapons technology. We think we've paid the price enough. So from a social perspective, uh, New Mexicans are, I'd say, based on the hearings, it's at least four to one against this type of a long, you know, it's supposed to be a temporary storage site, but all the pieces aren't in place. So let's not ship this stuff all over the place multiple times. Let's look at what the whole solution might be. When I hear them talking about this as being temporary storage, I always want to ask them, would you please define the word temporary in concrete terms? Because it's, it's very vague and we don't know exactly what is going to end up for this. If you had a preference, we're not talking about your position in the Sierra Club, but from your understanding of the issues, if you had a preference for what a solution would be, what would that look like to you? Well, my first step would be evaluating, are there actually locations where we have fuel rods that have been removed from the cooling pools and put into casks that are at high risk? And where are those locations? And then probably on a regional basis, you need to know where this is going to go. You need to train all the emergency responders along the way because actually that, to me, is the biggest risk. Rail's probably safest. Holtec, DOT, nobody. DOE gave up when DOE was evaluating what to do with the low-level waste that went to WIP. They gave up talking to the railroads because the railroads didn't want to have anything to do with it. And yet that's probably the best way to transport very heavy things. So you have to work the logistics out to that. And then you need to actually look at where you need several places to put this stuff because you're probably going to learn along the way more. For example, um, Yucca Mountain was higher seismic risk than they originally thought. WIP and that whole area is increasing seismic risk because of oil and gas and fracking. The oil and gas guys are right next to the boundaries of the WIP site, and the seismic risk has increased. Probably some of the most practical sites for long-term disposal are actually the older mountains along the Appalachians, which is where more of the reactors are 
where more people are, and therefore you've got push in both directions. You've got people that are saying, no, we're a highly populated area, we don't want it here. And yet from a technical perspective, it may be some of the best locations. So we need multiple disposal sites and then you have to figure out how to gradually move the waste from where they're scattered at the 100 locations currently to these various locations. To me, one of the other biggest things is that you don't want to perpetuate the problem. You don't want to relicense reactors. You don't want to reprocess fuel, which has its own waste stream that you're generating. Granted, it may be low level, but it's still radioactive. It's obvious that it, this is a long-term discussion, so we can't make the problem go away politically just by ignoring it. You brought up several times WIP, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant near Carlsbad, New Mexico. WIP has been engaged in taking 12,000 shipments of low-level waste from government research sites, and this has been advertised as a low-risk activity. Has this, in fact, been true? Low risk is probably true, but zero risk, which was actually some of what was stated, is not true. And Murphy's Law applies. This one's a great case of Murphy's Law applying, where using clay is a very good protection for the radioactivity. It's, it helps protect against shock. It helps protect about the radioactive processes occurring and, and abating that. However, they used an organic-based kitty litter instead of using a clay-based litter. And that was a simple mistake, relatively. However, that was a mistake that cost us a couple billion dollars and shut down WIP for an extended time. They also had a failure of a vehicle in the tunnels and a fire on a vehicle. And they didn't have an adequate ventilation system to deal with the fumes coming off of that fire. I don't believe in, in zero risk. I believe in low risk, but you have to have means to address that risk. It's a low risk, but extremely high impact type of activity. So it falls into a very different realm than I feel what's being advertised. WIP, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, seems like the ultimate long-term destination for this high-level waste, even though it was designed for, I believe, low- and mid-level waste. Is WIP a suitable location? And if not, why not? It's not sized for what they're proposing potentially might be in there. So it would require a reevaluation for high-level waste. So I, I don't know. It's a technical question. The folks that have followed the issues for decades think that if, based on what we know of the geology of the area currently and what's happening with the oil and gas industry, it, it's the biggest play, oil and gas play in the world right now. They're making tons of money off that area. But it's changing the area. The use of water in the area has increased dramatically to support fracking. I think it's uh, Southern Methodist University has done a study looking at subsidence of the ground and it's dropping dramatically, you know, feet in places. What does that mean to the stability of this location? It might be a suitable location, but then again, 
we have changed things. If nothing was changing, if the climate wasn't changing, if the oil and gas activities weren't going on, if we, if we were not pumping aquifers dry, it might be a suitable location. However, that's a lot of human activity going on in the area that is changing the equation. Yeah, that's an awful lot of ifs involved. What can be done? And what can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to support you in this vital work that you are doing to protect us all? One thing is financial. Um, the club will be involved in an intervention, which is basically a legal action with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. There are three other groups that will also be um, working on interventions. Folks can go to riograndsierraclub.org slash Holtec and make a donation. They can make a donation to other groups working on this issue. I think the interventions by the four groups that will be involved in that are the most immediate need. In the longer term, speaking with your, your representatives and senators and moving forward on the need to find a longer-term solution. It's going to be a long discussion. It's probably going to be one that will be more civil in the Senate than it will be in the House. And the senators only have to run every six years, not every two years. So it's a little bit less of a political hot potato for them. And I would say if a facility, a new reactor in folks' communities comes up for relicensing or new facilities are proposed, fight them. We don't need more. Object to reprocessing. That's, to me, that actually looks like the kind of thing that Holtec is looking at as an opportunity. If they've got all this waste in one place, wow, gee, we could build a big plant and reprocess it and sell it. You know, what a great opportunity. And they also hold a low they have kind of a low risk. If something goes really wrong, they just bail. They declare bankruptcy and it's our problem. It's always our problem when it comes to nuclear. Yes. I'm probably speaking to the choir here. Your audience is probably- oh, we, we have lurkers within the nuclear industry. I have verified feedback on that one. So some of those pro-nukers are out there. So yeah. give it your best shot. I personally don't think shutting down research on this industry is the way to go. We need to continue learning. Our abilities and our technologies are improving. But we also need to use our expertise. You know, the folks who are nuclear engineers are likely to have insights into how to address the problem without perpetuating it. So everybody in the industry is not our enemy. It's, we potentially have friends who can help us find solutions. And all of them are invited to contact NuclearHotSeat.com at info at NuclearHotSeat.com if you would like to join with your expertise to help in the resolution of the problems or at least further definition of them. And I will help put you in touch with John and anyone else who could possibly use the information. How's that? Thanks, Libby. That's great. Terrific. It's been great learning all of these details about what's going on in the Southwest as Nuclear Hot Seat continues to cover these issues. And I want to thank you, John Bookser of the Sierra Club, for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. That was John Bookser, chair of the Sierra Club Rio Grande chapter. Their website, 
where you can learn much more about the issues and what's at stake, is at riograndsierraclub.org. And while you're there, put in slash Holtec, H-O-L-T-E-C, to get lots of the dirty details. And, of course, we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 367. Activist shout-outs! We've spoken before on the program about Don't Bank on the Bomb at don'tbankonthebomb.com, which is a program for us to withdraw our monies from any banks or financial institutions that are invested anywhere in the, in the companies that build the component parts for nuclear weapons. But it can be difficult, if not impossible, to know what individual companies you own if you're invested through a mutual fund. Well, that has now changed. Weaponfreefunds.org, funds is plural, weaponfreefunds.org is a new tool to help you dig into institutional investments, including cities, towns, universities, colleges, even your faith community. Understanding institutional investments means that we can move the money in our communities out of war and out of weapons. It tracks military contractors, weapons manufacturers, this includes nuclear in particular, and also gun makers and retailers. If you're concerned about where your money is being invested and you'd like to know more, go to weaponfreefunds.org. And of course, there will be a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 367. And here's the update on my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, the good news is that I got it formatted almost. The bad news is there was one glitch in the Amazon Create Space template that no one could seem to fix. After a full week of dealing with the fiddly bits and hitting my head against the wall to put it together... As of today, I have finally hired someone else to do the formatting. If this works out, I'll be uploading to Create Space soon, possibly by the end of the week, or I just might be very optimistic yet again and there could be more delays. Did you ever have one of those dreams where you're trying to get somewhere and it's urgent, but the harder you run, the more you try, the slower you seem to go? And you just know that something bad could be gaining on you? Yeah, it kind of feels like that. So, if you are interested in the book, if perhaps you bought it during the pre-sale period, hang in there. And if you think you're on edge waiting for this to come out, how do you think I feel? Meanwhile, a reminder that award-winning environmental journalist Carl Grossman, the first pre-reader, said of Yes, I Glow in the Dark, Excellent. Easy reading, breezy, personal, interesting, very well written, and highly informative. I find the content impeccable. So, all of you out there who want this book, thanks for your patience and continue to hold a good thought. With any luck, both the paperback and the ebook will be available for purchase this month, July 2018. Here's today's final thought. As I'm recording this, tomorrow is the 4th of July. If you're outside of the United States, 
it's probably just another day. But here, everybody's off work, unless they're in the service industry. It is a riot of barbecues, picnics, drinking too much beer, and nighttime fireworks to mark our ongoing orgy of militarism. Our national anthem, its melody, by the way, was stolen from a British drinking song. The Star-Spangled Banner has us singing, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. In other words, our very existence as a nation is equated with being able to see munitions exploding in the air, over targets, presumably taking our enemies down and out. Think of the impact that song, those lyrics, must have made and continue to make on our national psyche. From the time we first learned the song in early childhood, through every time we sing it or hear it sung or played at schools, sporting events, civic gatherings, even religious services, it implants the equation Violent bombing equals our survival as a nation, the proof that our flag is still there, and there, and everywhere else. Did you know that there was once a movement in the 1960s to make Woody Guthrie's song, This Land is Your Land, the national anthem? Think of the subversiveness of the chorus. This land is your land. This land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. (laughs) Fat chance that would ever get into the official info stream, especially these days. But think of the difference that informational imprint might have made. Shared land, shared resources, And then there's that subversive fifth verse of the song, which goes, In the squares of the city, in the shadow of the steeple, near the relief office, I see my people. And some are grumbling, and some are wondering, if this land's still made for you and me. Well... The song may not have the explosive force of those rockets and their red glare, but maybe we can still turn this thing around, even without a more all-inclusive and peaceful soundtrack for our national anthem. Play ball! This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 3, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, dianuke.org, bologna.org, greenpeace, rt.com, reuters, chernobyl-international.com, abc.net.au, with thanks to listener Brett Bernard Stokes for his Aussie-based insights, Dr. Gordon Edwards and ccnr.org, theglobeandmail.com, theguardian.com, cbsnews.com, nbcnews.com, axios.com, newyorktimes.com, kdsk.com, abqjournal.com, reformer.com, residents organized for a safe environment, 
allthingsnuclear.com and David Lockbaum of the Union of Concerned Scientists, the soul-dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for world nuclear news, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a big and loving shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. You are in 123 countries on six continents, and we're still counting. Along with that, a big welcome to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. I am so glad I'm with you on this journey together as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. And yeah, I think that could use a song, too. Thanks for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page. If you haven't stopped by yet, come on down and check it out. Click like, follow, post, and share. And you can find our back episodes, all 366 of them, at NuclearHotSeat.com. After you put the URL in, if you add slash blog, you'll be able to scan back 10 episodes at a time, or you can check by date. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered by email every week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down to find the big yellow box, that's especially if you're on a tablet or a smartphone, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. Just click on one of the buttons there, red or green, we'll get you going. And we really will appreciate your support. This show is copyright 2018, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that any time you communicate about nuclear, be certain to include the words nuclear. The issue is safety. Because it is. There. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.